And I'm hoping that the Lord does that for all of you today, as he did for me this week as you go through it. When you read this passage, if you just read it as a casual reading, you really don't get, I think, the emphasis of what God is trying to tell us and describe out of that. And that's because we come from the Western tradition. When we look at learning, we tend to look at things with bullet points, right? And we tend to describe God as omnipotent, right? All-knowing and omnipresent everywhere at all times and, and uh, omniscient, knows all. And so we kind of describe that. But in the Old Testament, in the Eastern tradition, they use word pictures, right, to describe God, right? They call him the Good Shepherd, the Kingsman Redeemer, uh, the Bread of Life, the Light of the World, all these things that give you these pictures and literally hundreds of them, right? Because you can't describe God in a few phrases. And I love how they get into this passage and really kind of work through it in a way that if we think about what they're saying and the pictures that he's bringing out here, we'll see a whole different context of this passage that I'm hoping you've never really seen before. I believe the passage really describes the history and order of grace. And I'm going to explain that to you in a minute, hopefully. When you look at it, you know, we, we, we set out in this passage, and I think God is, first of all, it's, it's six weeks since they left Egypt. So I'm going to keep that in mind, right? And in six weeks, what have they done since they left Egypt? They've been complaining that they didn't have any food. They didn't have any water. Who was going to protect them? They, they, all they've been doing is complaining and moaning to Moses and Moses takes the requests of the people to God, and he, and, he, and he brings them before God, and God answers their prayers. It's kind of interesting. Now, we find ourselves, if you go to the map real quick, it's interesting because God is using this, this, this exodus to sort of teach the nation of Israel to trust him and Moses. And, and actually, in, in where they're at, so when you look at the, the map, they're all the way down here at the bottom. You'll see Rephidim. And then you'll see Mount Sinai. And technically, he led them out of Egypt and he's taken them further away from the promised land than they were in Egypt. And isn't that seem somehow it goes with us in our lives? We commit our lives to the Lord and the Lord takes us further away from the things we're asking him or we think he wants us to do, right? It seems like he's taking us in the desert, in the wilderness, and we're thinking, wait a minute, I, I, I came to serve you, Lord. Where are you taking me? To me, I think that we look at things and it's, we, we tend to want God to work our way and our timing, and God doesn't do that. And it's a blessing if we really understand it and accept it, that God works in his way. And to me, there's two biblical examples that kind of give us a picture of what's going on right now. They leave Egypt, they're coming down, they're coming down to God's mountain, they're going to come and worship God at his mountain, Right? And, and as they come down there, um, they're further away from the promised land of where they thought they was going to lead them. And he's leading them into a desert, into a place where there is no food and there is no water. And they have to be totally, totally dependent on him. And it's interesting because I think there's two great biblical examples of this that I like to go through. First one is Joseph. We all know Joseph. Most of us know him from the Joseph in the, in the Technicolor dream coat, right? 
he, he, uh, you know, Jacob was his father. Jacob had two wives. He had Rachel and he had Leah. He had ten kids with Leah, two with Rachel. And it's a classic example of why his parents, you don't show favoritism to your kids because it created a lot of turmoil in the family. And uh, we find Joseph, uh, he has these dreams, right? And he has, on a, a couple of different occasions, he has a dream where, uh, in, in the symbolism of the dream, it meant that his brothers would bow down before him, right? And like a typical teenager, he tells his brothers, oh, yeah, I had this dream, and guess what? You're all going to bow, bow down before me, right? Which didn't add to the family harmony in any way, right? And then a little bit later on, he has a similar dream, and this time he includes his father and mother into it, right? And, and Jacob says, hey... Um, uh, you know, what are you talking about? Well, you think we're going to bow down to you, right? And, but there's a little phrase in the, in the chapter. It says, and Jacob took this matter to heart or, or kept it in his mind as to what was happening here. And it's interesting because when you look at the story of Joseph, we all know how it ends. And um, knowing that Jacob kept the matter in mind, you know, we, we find that he goes through all these tribulations. At Dothan, he gets you know, captured by his brothers, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery. Now, he, all the time, he thinks he's going to be God's man. Gets sold into slavery, if you don't know the story. He goes to Egypt. He's in Egypt. He's uh, sold into slavery into Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife makes an advance on him. He runs and flees. Potiphar has the same face. So he blames Joseph, who goes to prison. In prison, his gift of dreaming actually helps him. He, is a, he, he deciphers a dream for the, with the cupbearer and the baker. One's going to die, one's going to live. And then tells the one who's going to live, hey, when you get out, remember me. A little bit later on, he remembers him because the king now is having a dream. And he can't decipher it. But this is not a life of, of, of what he thought being a child of God would be, right? He goes, he's, he's almost killed by his brothers, sold into slavery, into prison, and eventually he makes it out, and he becomes the number two guy in all of Egypt. Isn't that cool? You know, when you think about how his prayers were for God, how long, years, we're talking about years and years of suffering and tribulation to get to a place where all of a sudden he's seeing blessings from God. We know the story. Later on, the brothers are starving. They need food. They go to Egypt to get some food because in his dreams, he realized that there were going to be a famine. He stored up food for the famine. And God used him to save Egypt and to save his family who didn't know who he was and came back to get food. Joseph recognizes him. He does this little thing with him because he really wants to see his brother and his brother didn't come. And the next thing you know, the long story short, they are saved because of his position. And in essence, we're bowing down before him because he was the ruler of the land. Years it took to do that, right? Years. Years of going through what we refer to as the proverbial desert to get to the place where he was in this place of the promised land, right? The other one is Elisha. Elisha at Dothan is in the city and he's hemmed up because the Syrian army is coming after him, right? And he prays that first his servant would be able to see what he sees because he sees an army of the Lord between him and the Assyrian, the Assyrian army, right? And he says, Lord, open my servant's eyes that he could see what I see. That's that whole concept of that song. Open our eyes to see the wonder of God. I wonder when we read God's word, do we really look for his wonder? 
And so he, the servant's eyes are open. The next thing you know, we see in a quick prayer, a short matter of time, in short order, God delivers Elisha. Two contrasts. One, years and years and years and years and years, and the other one like that. Both are an example of grace. Both kind of show what God was doing. One prays for decades, the other in a, in a moment's time. And so we see, though, at the end of Genesis, as we get to the end of Joseph's life, when they're carrying him out of Egypt to go on this trip called the Exodus to get up to the Promised Land, we see how God's hand worked through all of that stuff, right? How he brought them together. Because here's the thing. Elijah needed deliverance from an enemy, but Joseph and his family really need to be saved in some regards from themselves they needed to see salvation come amongst them and you know what it wouldn't have happened any other way it took the pain and suffering sometimes to see what god is doing i I love what um, john newton said he says nobody learns they're a sinner by being told they have to be shown isn't that true i mean you think if, if Jacob went to Joseph and said, look, you're an egomaniac with these dreams. You're going to need to shut up, right? Do you think he would have listened? I'm sure he did that. It's not in the text, right? We as parents all know that he was a teenager. They don't listen to anybody, right? I think Jeff Allen says the best thing about teenagers is teenagers are God's revenge on humanity. It's like he said, hey, let's see how they like it to create something in their own image that denies their existence. Isn't that true? It's amazing, though, you get this picture here, and we see them going into into the desert, following God out of Egypt. And it's interesting because Joseph's brother's eyes were opened to what God was doing through Joseph's life and even theirs to save Israel. They had to go through difficulty to see God's hand at work and all through all the tragedy. They had, in essence, go to Egypt to see God's redemptive work in saving their lives. And it's interesting when you look at the passage, because God says to Moses, tell the house of Jacob, word picture, the people of Israel, word picture, the house of Jacob. What was Jacob? His name was Deceiver, right? Back in the day, Jacob was this confused guy, running from his brother, running from God in a lot of ways, until he wrestled with God, and God blessed him. He wouldn't let go until he blessed him. And all of a sudden, he changed his name from Jacob the Deceiver to Israel, And so we see him using both references here, right? The house of Jacob, the house of the deceiver, now to the the people of Israel, showing there's a change that has been made. And guess who did it? God. Didn't Joseph say, don't be afraid in Genesis 50? I'm in a place of God. In other words, he recognizes this was all the things that happened in his life was all God. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The nation of Israel had to go through the desert in order to get to the promised land. It was God's plan. It's how he grew them, how how he nurtured them. All these things that they're going through and would go through were meant to teach them they can trust God and Moses. It's the same in the New Testament. Romans 5 says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope, 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here's the thing. We're all going to suffer in this lifetime, right? We're all going to have issues that we go through. The key is it should shape us but not define us. And what we should be talking about in the midst of all the struggles and trials and tribulations is not how those things took us down, but how God lifted us up and could use us in spite of them. Right? I mean, how many of us are going to be sold into slavery, beaten and outcast by our family, you know, thrown into prison unjustly, and then do something for somebody to get out who doesn't repay you? They were sort of rejected. And then all of a sudden find yourself in a land of favor. Suffering's there to teach us something, not just about ourselves, but really more importantly, something about God's work in our lives. To me, the ultimate example, is it not Jesus? Preaches the kingdom of God and everybody's loving it. The lion will lay down with the lamb and, and uh, no more tears and the Messiah's reign and no more Rome and all these things are really great. And then he ends up on the cross. Can you see his disciples thinking, what good could come of this? We know they didn't really understand it because they fled, right? They didn't really buy into the program. But see, to get to the resurrection, you've got to go through the cross. To get to the promised land, you have to go through the desert. There is no eternal life with no cross. God can't come in and take care of evil. If he does that without the cross, he's going to have to take us out as well because we're part of the evil. But no, the cross provides forgiveness so we can deal with evil but also save us. To me, that is the history of grace, and we see it here. You must go through the desert to get to the promised land. The question for us this morning, and the question I have to ask you, because it's a question I ask myself is, are you ready for that? Are you willing to accept that if that's where he leads you now? I know there's some people in here right now, they're smack dab in the middle of the desert. And they're wondering, why, oh, why am I here? But let me tell you, one thing I know from the nation of Israel, God has got a plan. And God is going to do something. The question is, will you go with God? Will you trust him in the midst of that desert? Philippians, Paul says, oh, he's thinking about it. But one thing I do... I love this. It's simple. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I do what? I press on. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He's writing that in prison. He's writing that in chains. He's not lamenting on where God has him. He's focused on what God is doing in him and hopefully through him. He's not complaining about being in prison, unjustly prosecuted. 
He's not complaining about what happened in his past. He's saying, I'm going to put that behind because I'm going to press on towards God and the hope that I have in Jesus. I may be in the desert now, but I know there's a promised land ahead. That's confidence. That's how we can write the book of joy in prison. Here's what John Newton also said. Everything that is needful... That he is need, everything is needful that he sends. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, right? You all know that. But nothing can be needful that he withholds. Isn't that interesting? You could probably spend meditate on that for the rest of your life and never really figure it out. Everything that is needful he sends, and everything that is not needful he does. In other words, God gives you everything you need wherever you're going in life right now. Whether you caused it, someone else caused it, the government caused it, the world caused it, it really doesn't matter. Where you're at right now, God knows you somehow you need that. It's kind of weird, huh? That's why Romans 8 says, All things work together for the good of those who love God are called according to His purposes. That means all things are good for you, but they may not be good in the sense that we think. He focuses here on somewhat of an order of grace, the history of grace, right? We looked at the history of grace, and so we kind of see how God works that, right? He's going to take us through the desert to get to the promised land. You've got to go through the cross to see the resurrection. He kind of walks through this. If you look at verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be treasured. My treasured possessions among all the peoples of all the earth is mine. And you shall be my kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Notice the sequential order of grace. They were saved, right? God's acts of salvation. Then... He brings on obedience being second because that's the, our appropriate response to what God has already done for us. And then the third is the blessing, which is the byproduct of obedience, right? Saved, obedience, blessings. I mean, when he uses the phrase, how do I know that? When he uses the phrase on eagle wings, it used to be my mom's favorite song. Played it at her funeral, you know. I bore you up on eagle's wings. We all know the song. Here's the beauty of that little, what is he saying there? To be borne up on an eagle's wings means you do nothing. The eagle does all the work. The eagle carries you out. And what God is saying here, notice what I did to the Egyptians. Not you. They didn't even have an army. Heck, they didn't even have any weapons. He says, I bore you up. It was salvation. It was sheer grace. God saved them. They did nothing. They were on the eagle's wings, flying out of Egypt by the sole hand of God. That's grace. That's grace. I was reading a, a commentary by a guy named J. Alec Motier. What a cool name, huh? Motier. And so uh, it was fascinating. And one of the things he said in the, in the book, and uh, you know, uh, he says in the book that um, the Exodus is the greatest visual aid in all the Bible of grace and the gospel. I want you to think about that for a minute. The greatest visual aid in the Bible. And so you, you, all of a sudden you hear this story about how it started with Joseph. That's how they got into Israel, right? And how now they're being brought out of Israel, Joseph with them. 
and how they're making their way to the promised land. And think about it, a Jew at that time. Think of what they would be able to say. I was in bondage. Okay, now think about this in light of the Christian thought process. We were in bondage, slaves in a foreign land. We were delivered by being sheltered under the blood of the Lamb. We found salvation out of the place we were at by the mighty hand of God. And we know he's bringing us to a promised land. Isn't the same for us? We were in bondage to sin, right? We were delivered by the blood of the Lamb. God saved us from this world and all that is in it. And he's promised us eternity with him in heaven, right? When you think about it, the order is important for us to see all of Scripture. Because without it, it gets kind of messed up, right? He saved us, and then he brought the law that led to blessing. So, in other words, we were accepted, right? He accepted us before there was any need for obedience. The other way of looking at some religions say, well, if you obey, you're accepted, and then you're blessed. That's kind of works-based, right? No, no, he says, no, hey, I saved you, and then after I saved you, I'm commanding you to obey. Out of that salvation, out of that saving act, you will see things differently if you look at it that way. That's why he talks about the house of Jacob and Israel. Otherwise, I'm accepted because I obey versus I'm accepted, I obey because I'm accepted, right? There's a big difference there. It's for the Jew, they, if, if they thought it was obedience and then they were accepted, they would obey the Ten Commandments. For us as Christians, we look at it and say, well, we're accepted so I can obey the Ten Commandments. We're both accepting, I mean, we're both doing and adhering to the Ten Commandments, but for different reasons, from a different perspective. It changes how you might live the Christian life. What's beautiful is that the, the, it wasn't the law and then deliverance. It was deliverance and then the law. Because it changes their perspective on who God is and why he does what he did. It's, he, it shows you when we talk about unconditional love. He saved us while we were yet still sinners. He saved us when we were estranged from him. When we, he, he saved them even though he knew they were going to do nothing but complain and gripe. He saved them anyways. We'll see why in a minute. To me, I think that for me, I, I obey because I'm accepted. I obey because I see the awesome love of God that was poured out on me when I didn't deserve it. Grace, unmerited favor. And because of that, I want to obey, right? When you f- fall in love with somebody, you want to learn what pleases them. You want to learn the will of the beloved, don't you? I wanted to learn what my wife liked because I wanted to please her. Why did I want to please her? Because I knew she loved me and I wanted to make sure she knew I loved her. It's the same with God. Because I'm accepted, I want to obey. Because I want to know the will of the, of the, of the beloved in my life because I'm loved. How can I not respond that way? I'm accepted not because I obey. I'm accepted because he loved me first. 
See, we have to understand you don't obey to get things from God. You don't obey to get things from God. And that's what he's trying to show us here. You obey to get God. Big difference in terms of how you look at it. I mean, think about for a second the prodigal son. It kind of changes things when you look at it now, right? The prodigal son, he took what the father had and he ran off and he wanted to go spend it the way he wanted to spend it and then finds himself realizing as he's in the, the muck and the mire of a, of a pig pen thinking, wait, I mean, even, the, even the servants in my father's house have it better than me. And he goes back home and as he's going back home, I love the story because it shows that the father saw him from far off and the father leaves to go greet him and meet him. It's a great story, right, about the love of God. It's a great story about the grace of God. In spite of our disobedience, in spite of our rebellion. But the interesting part of that story, which always kind of bothered me, was the other brother who was in the house. Why was he doing things to obey his father? Because when the brother comes home, the father's delighted. He's mad. I wonder if it's because he was doing things to get things from his father, not because he loved his father. And I wonder if that's the way it is with us in the church today and why we don't see the power of God working through us as we try to move faith forward. Because you know what? We're here because each and every one of us want to get something from God versus truly getting God. It's a huge difference. If you take an eaglet, this is the interesting thing when I was looking at the, the eagle and that reference on eagle's wings, and I started wondering, why, you know, how do eagles fly? And one of the things I saw was if you take an eagle out of the nest before it flies and put it down on the ground, it'll just be like a chicken. It'll never learn how to fly. Isn't that weird? And at the same time, if you don't get the, if the, if the mother doesn't get the eagles to get out and fly, the dominant chick, that's what they're called, the dominant eaglette, will kill the other siblings to fight for food. And isn't it kind of we see that in the nation of Israel, right? We saw it in Joseph Weiss with his brothers. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him. There was turmoil in the family over who, who was more favored. It's an interesting picture when you really think about it. This history in order of grace, they saved them. It was God's redemptive action, his salvic action in the lives of his people. Obedience was second, which is our appropriate response to knowing what God did for us. And then the blessings are third, and this is the most important thing, I think, when you think about it, because you know God desires to bless us. That's the cool thing. He desires to bless us. Yes, he wants us to be obedient because obedience shows we know what he did for us. We understand what grace is. We know we weren't deserving. We know he's holy and we're not no matter what we do, how much we give, how much we serve, no matter how much we forgive, we're not God. And when you understand that, it kind of changes in how you look at him and what he's looking to do through us. I love how he ends here. He's now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now, he doesn't say, I'm going to make a covenant with you. He doesn't do that yet. He's saying, keep my covenant. He made the covenant. He took him out of Israel. He's saying, now if you obey me. In other words, he did all the work. 
You came to know God if you know Jesus this morning, not because of anything you've done. You did it by the Holy Spirit's grace and by the power of God to draw you to himself. Because the Bible says none will seek God, no one. No one in here would have sought God without him drawing you in. That's grace. Blessings are there in principle because I'm, he saved us by his grace and it's through obedience we actually realize the true blessing of what he did for us. It's falling in love with God and then trying to find out the will of the beloved, what pleases him, because you want to show him you're so overwhelmed and grateful and thankful for what he did for you. We have the picture of the cross that really demonstrates that in the flesh that gives us a picture for us to realize, oh my gosh, what am I doing with my life? How easily do I not make church, not make growth group, not serve and not give when he did all that for me? He says in this passage, if you do it, you'll be my treasured possession. That's one of the blessings. You become a treasured possession possession right in that day the monarch owned everything in the land anyways right he owned everything he was the king but this phrase treasured possession was that which was personal to the king that nobody else could even touch or 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 handle in any way it was his precious possession that he kept close to him over the years it's many different things but it kind of gives you a picture now of who we are you'll be my treasured possession that private, personal wealth of the king. You are the private, personal jewel in God's eye. That's why in letter passage he says, you are the apple of my eye. Technically, we are already his treasure because he saved us, which is why he saved us. And when we obey in the realization that we really feel the love of God through the blessings he gives through obedience. Grace equals you are accepted. Now enjoy the blessings of obedience. Legalism is you are obedient, thus you are accepted. Now enjoy the blessings of your obedience. Big difference. Grace is you're accepted. Why? To treasure being treasured. Legalism is that to you obey to get benefits or Blessings because you obeyed. Huge difference when you look at how grace really unfolds in Scripture. Then he says, not only you are a treasured possession, but you're a holy nation, meaning a different kind of society set apart from all the different religions in Cana, the promised land where they're going. I want you to obey so that you will set yourselves apart, that you will be differentiating noticeably different than the rest of the world. In other words, when the gospel gets a hold of ego, where you don't think you're too low to, 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 to be loved by God, and that you don't think you're too high to realize that's why God loves you, it's that, that regulation of the ego. Once you get that ego in check so you can live life in meekness and mildness, all of a sudden it changes in how God uses you and works through you. When, when understanding God's order of grace that obedience just shuts up the ego so you can live in that humility and meekness that we find in the Sermon on the Mount that we went through. 
C.S. Lewis says, what God's looking for is that you should not think less of yourself or more of yourself. You should just think less of yourself. So don't think less of yourself or more of yourself. Just think less of yourself. That's the whole point, right? That's selflessness. What a community we would be if we lived that way. What kind of relations do we have? See, when you understand an ego's in check in the order of God, money, sex, and power are treated so differently, aren't they? So differently. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, right? And, and that, that has a connotation that you're going to shed light. So we as a nation, as a, a holy people set apart to God, should we not be the light of the world? to the world that's living in darkness? Shouldn't we be set apart in a way that's different? We were in uh, starting point class. I'm going to hurry real quick. But we were reading Romans chapter 12. To me, this is a perfect picture of it for us as a church. Romans 12, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, for your one body have many members, and that the members do not have all the same functions. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to grace given to us, let us use them. If prophesying in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another and with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints as to uh, seek to show hospitality. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all if possible. So far it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, I will repay says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If we, the people of God, the people of Israel, lived in that way, would we not be set apart? Would we not be so different? But I think a lot of times we get so consumed with the desert we're going through that we forget about the promised land that's ahead of us. If we obey. If we see God so differently. Because he finishes, then you'll also be a kingdom of priests. What is a priest? Priest is one who brings the word of God to the people. It's one who's a mediator between uh, God and man. And, and he, he is, he's one who brings you know, outside the community into the community and then instructs them in the way they should live. If we're treasured possessions, living out our love for God and obedience, the blessings would come as a visual sign, a light to the world in darkness. In essence, you will display my glory to the world if you live in obedience to my word. The question this morning, do you find yourself in the desert because you're just struggling with obedience? Are you not experiencing the joy and love and peace that comes from God because you're not being obedient 
In Exodus 29, it goes on, and we'll see that later. They'll know I'm your God who brought you out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord your God. The goal of doing all this was to bring all people to him. The Bible says that God wishes none shall be lost, right? That all should be saved. God's point of doing it was to use the nation of Israel as a visual aid to the order and history of grace so that people would see you can't do anything to earn salvation. It's all on Jesus. God saves. Our response to that salvation is obedience out of love that he loved us first. And in doing so, the beautiful thing out of it, we get blessed. God did all the work, but we get blessed. The question is, are we willing to go through the desert? The passage ends, I'm going to do this really quick with him drawing them to the mountain of God, right? And it's kind of interesting because if you would go through the land of Cana, they would build these little temples that were like pyramids or these things that would, man would be able to go up and seek God, right? And so that's all the religions in Cana at the time were all about that. They'd build these temples to climb up to see God. In this case, God brings them to his ziggurat. Those temples were called ziggurats. They were kind of like um, uh, pyramids. But here we find them in the middle of nowhere in front of Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And all of a sudden, a little bit later on, he says, hey, have the people consecrate themselves and you know, stay away from women, wash their clothes, get prepared, consecrate themselves for three days, pray to get ready to meet me. And don't worry, Moses, when we're there, I'm going to talk to you from the mountain, and they're going to hear me. And he does it. But the difference between what God does and all other religions does, God came down the ziggurat to us. In the midst of the smoke and the fire, God comes and speaks to Moses and the people of Israel. But he tells them, hey, don't go, don't stay this far away. If you, if you cross this line, you're going to die. You're going to be stoned or you're going to be shot with arrows or I'm going to take you out one of the three. Because here's what we fail to miss. We get caught up in this whole process and we as Christians tend to think, oh, we're really good people. Oh, we're the apple of God's eye. God loves us. And, you know, we don't really focus on the obedience because we don't really recognize the holiness of God, how holy God is. I guarantee you, you could be, I don't know who, but you can't approach God when God says, I am holy. Because you know what? All our lame excuses about why we don't do the things we do will not stand in the face of a holy God. Oh, God, I was too tired. Oh, God, I had this. Or, oh, God, I couldn't do this. Or, oh, God, all those excuses are going to bring us on our faces before God. And shame. After we know all he did for us, how he delivered us when we didn't deserve it, how he loved us and just called us to obedience in response to that love so that he could bless us even more, and yet we always come up with lame excuses as to why we can't do things. Why we don't want to obey here or obey there or obey here and see before God it won't stand. But he wants you to know he loves you. He gives this picture to say, hey, look, you're never going to be me. You're never going to be close to me. You're never going to be a God. I and I alone am God and I am holy. 
Now, he does say be holy like he is, but we know we'll never achieve that. That's why we need grace. That's why we needed the cross. But it should tell us how much he loved us in spite of who we are and what we do and do not do, how he loves us in a way that just blows us away. See, they didn't obey to get out of Egypt. They were already out of Egypt when he called them to obey. He brought them out on eagles' wings. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. The question this morning is, do you love him? Do you love him in such a way to overcome your lame excuses about why you don't witness to your neighbor, your coworker, your family member, your friend, why you're not living in a way that sets you apart from everyone else around you, why the church doesn't have power. You know, we shouldn't have to bring people to church to hear the gospel. The apostles, when they first started the, the movement, the evangelistic movement, it wasn't them that went out. They stayed in, in Israel, right? They stayed in Jerusalem. It was everybody that heard the gospel went out and started all these churches that launched other churches. They took the gospel. They didn't have to bring them to Israel. They didn't have to bring them to Jerusalem. And that's the calling of the church, to get out, to move faith forward wherever you are. Because God loves you. And through your obedience, he wants to bless you. But he wants also to recognize where he is in comparison to us and why he wants to draw you closer to him. So don't neglect your word, your devotion. Don't neglect not being in a growth group. Don't neglect serving. Don't neglect giving. Don't neglect the things that God's calling you to obey because you know what? In and through all those things, he will bless you. Don't do it because you get the blessings. Do it for the right reasons. Don't do it to get something from God. Do it to get God. We need him. We need him. I'm going to close with this. I, you, you've all seen this, I'm sure, a million times. On your computers, it's, it made a, its way around about five, six years ago. I think it makes itself around every five or six years. It's this thing where you see this beautiful commercial and it's something where it's talking about something really nice and you're kind of into it. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, bam, this scary picture comes up, right? And this music and everybody goes, oh my gosh, right? To me, I don't want us to be the type of people that when we all of a sudden come to that place before God and we're faced with his holiness, we're scared out of our minds because of how we lived in his grace. Yeah, he's going to forgive us. And yeah, it's already done. But man, to stand before him where he says, well done, good and faithful servant, takes a life of obedience. It takes the willingness to walk through the desert because the promised land awaits us all. Let's pray.